Some people just stayed in their seats. I don't think that counts, so we'll have to see again maybe if we have to do that. But um, if, you were, uh, if you've got a Bible, would you please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. If not, I think this is printed in your worship folder. We're going to go back just a couple verses. Um, at the end of Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 22, but really our, our text for today is verses 24 through 26. So if you would, please stand with me as we read God's word. Heavenly Father, what a gift and joy it is to know that, that we march after your truth. Lord, that you are the God who leads, you are the God who guides, that you are the God who saves. And we pray now, Lord, that your word would speak into our hearts. Lord, that you would do that work that only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's inspired word for us today. Would you please have a seat? So it's, uh, it's Memorial Day weekend, as you know, which means that we can and we should uh, remember those who have laid down their lives in service of this country. Uh, but we've also got to keep in mind that as we come into uh, this place, we don't come here to honor or worship this nation or her heroes, right? But to honor and worship the one who is the hero of every nation, we don't deny the importance of the men and women who came before us, and, and, and we do remember those who have given their all. And our hearts are actually moved by those incredible acts of selfless love, and, and we really truly see in vivid color what Jesus told his disciples, that there is no greater love than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, the moving Saving Private Ryan came out when I was in middle school, and maybe you've heard me tell this story before, but um, because I loved Tom Clancy novels and anything that had to do with war and had learned about World War II in history class, I begged my dad to take me to the theater. And it, it was the two of us, and there was a few kind of grizzled uh, older gentlemen that kind of sat in the theater, and, and, and we all watched together, and I'll, I'll never forget, if you've seen the movie, you'll know the kind of the eerie quiet that the movie opens as, as you're, you're kind of sitting in a boat going across um, the water towards the French beach of Normandy. And you hear the waves lapping and all of a sudden the armored doors of the personnel carriers open up and literally hell breaks loose for the next 30 minutes of the film as, as German machine guns open fire and the, the, the water turns red with blood. Now five years ago, Megan and I had the chance to, to go, sorry, to go to France. And we went to, to Normandy and, and we walked along Omaha Beach, which was such a quiet and peaceful place, such a surreal moment. You know, we, we walked along the sand. We actually got to, to climb and crawl down through the bunkers, which are still there. Uh, we saw sheep grazing in the bottom of grass-covered craters that had been left by bombs. A crazy moment. And so at, at the end of this movie, I'm going to fast forward. So from the first 30 minutes, which is literally hell breaking loose on earth, 
to the last few moments of the film after Private Ryan has been saved and, and, and after he safely secured Private Ryan in order to return him home, you'll remember, to a grieving mother who had already lost three sons in the war, we find Captain Miller, who's now lay dying on a bridge that he was defending from the Nazis. And as that young man that he had given his life was kneeling in front of him, Captain Miller grabs his shirt and he pulls him close and he whispers into his ear, James, earn this. Earn it. Earn this. And so minutes later, the the movie now closes with an elderly James Ryan kneeling once again in front of a white cross etched with the words Captain John H. Miller in the American Cemetery in Normandy. And he's whispering through tears, every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. And I've tried to live my life the best that I can. I hope that was enough. I hope at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. And his wife and family is now standing in the background and his wife walks over and he pleads with her. Tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And that movie is so heart-wrenching and it's so horrible and terrible and it's probably required watching for anyone who really wants to understand what Memorial Day is all about. But that ending is just so difficult, right? And it captures the sentiment that I think that we all wrestle with at one point or another. Am I enough? Is my life worthy of that type of sacrifice? You're writing in the Atlantic, uh, one author asks this question decades later. A decade later, he says, don't we all struggle under Ryan's moral burden? How can Ryan, or for that matter, any of us, ever pay such a debt? And to whom? In our passage today, again, it comes along the heels of of this famous passage of Scripture, the fruit of the Spirit, and we we read it, right? The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, out of order, but anyway, you get the idea. Um, And as we reflect upon that list, and as we read that list, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, that doesn't really sound like me at all. And not, not me, me, but you, me. Or maybe me, me as well, right? Um, but then as we read it again, we kind of start to think, you know what, that sure sounds a lot like Jesus. Because it's, this list is a, a, a list of the nature and character of God. It's a description of the Son of God, and it is the fruit or result of having the Spirit of Christ, Because after showing what the Spirit looks like, Paul is now going to remind the church of who they are and who they belong to. Now remember that Paul wrote this letter to a church that was at risk of becoming overwhelmed by these false teachers who were ethnically Jewish imposter Christians. And we'll we'll use the quotation Christians, right? They looked devout on the outside, but they were causing all sorts of problems for Paul. They were sowing dissension. They were publicly questioning his credentials as an apostle. And they were striving to invalidate and undermine the ministry that he had worked so hard for. Because as they came to Galatia, they saw a largely Gentile congregation and church who did not look like or act like 
they did. They were appalled at their pagan appearance and their pagan customs and pagan practices. And as a result, they were teaching that the gospel of Jesus is incomplete unless the people who received it also started to adhere to some of the strict Jewish dietary laws and the the covenant of circumcision. So these people were more than just party poopers. Okay, they were, they were more than just a wet blanket who came in, but, but their ideas were unbiblical and actually antithetical to the doctrine of grace. See, as Paul explains throughout this letter, these false teachers, they were the ones who were missing God because they didn't understand the love of God. See, Paul taught that the peace with God is the free gift of God that can't be earned in any way. And those Judaizers objected with all their might to that message. See, they weren't necessarily opposed to Jesus, but they believed that it it took more than just a simple faith to merit the favor of God. See, they had their own list of what a Christian should look like as well. And, And the thing is that all of their qualities, they might not necessarily be pleasant, but they were possible, right? Because they were external, you know, it's possible to keep a kosher diet. It's, it's possible to be circumcised. Like I said, it's not always pleasant, but it's possible, right? It's possible to really follow any list of rules that you could be given at least for a little bit of time. But Paul's list of what a Christian looks like was far different. It consists of these internal qualities that are impossible to manufacture on our own. You know, we look at that list and say, that's, that's just impossible, Only Jesus could live like that. To which Paul would say, exactly, exactly. See, to be a Christian doesn't mean to live according to a prescribed public morality or to vote for a particular political party or even hold a particular flavor of theology. But a Christian is someone who enjoys a love relationship with Jesus. They are loved by him and they love him in return. See, they love because he first loved them. And when they receive his love, they belong to him. A Christian is someone whose debt has been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. They've been purchased from slavery to the dominion of death and released into the kingdom of his marvelous light. So they were completely dead in their sin, but now they've been transformed and made completely alive in Jesus. And as Paul said before, that the, the life with Jesus, that's a gift, Right? God's gift can't be bought, it can't be earned, it, it, it can only be received. Because if we bought a gift, if we earned a gift, then it wouldn't be a gift, would it? But that doesn't mean that gifts don't cost anything. In fact, gifts are purchased. And the gift of grace costs God everything. In his book, on discipleship, the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who actually led uh, the German resistance against Hitler, wrote this. He said, above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God. Because it cost God the life of God's son, you were bought with a price. And because nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly to God. See, Christians belong to God because they've been bought with a price. And and, and that belonging is really the same way that that your children belong to you. You know, we've got three girls, three and a half, four, depending on how you talk about our adoption, on on which day, how we feel about it. 
So our girls are they're 11, 9, 6, and 5. 4. Sorry, last one's 4. And, and they go to a lot of birthday parties. Right? And, and as they go to these birthday parties and they run around, like um, sometimes or you're out in public and you're, and you're watching your children and you're kind of thinking, who's... Whose parent does that child belong to, right? You ever, ever in that situation? Or, or more often, really, it's, is, is that really my child? Like, does that child really belong to me? Uh, in fact, our eldest just brought home um, this autobiography that she'd been working on all year long at school, so we got to finally see it. Um, and, and this is the way she described her favorite Thanksgiving, that where we had some friends join us for dinner. She said this, we played a lot of games and ran around like wild people. That's her favorite Thanksgiving, is running around like wild people. Those are my children, okay? So belonging, it reveals relationship. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here, that that those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And maybe you hear that and you're thinking, well, you know what? I'm not good enough, and I'll never be good enough to crucify my passions and desires. And and sometimes we, we get stuck on that idea. Or we even communicate to others, you can only belong to Jesus after You've cleaned yourself up, or, or after you've, you've taken care of these sinful passions and desires. And if we, if we believe that, we actually make the same mistake that the Judaizers were making. Right? It completely misses the point, which is that on our own, we are powerless. We can't crucify anything. In fact, another great theologian, John Calvin, wrote this. He said, the word crucified is used to point out that the mortification of the flesh is the effect of the cross. This work does not belong to man. See, he's saying we can't kill our sin in our power. It's impossible. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus was the one who went to the cross for us. And he was crucified, not for his own sin, but for my sin. His sin wasn't crucified on the cross. Our sin was. And those who belong to Christ can crucify the flesh only after they have received his spirit and his power. In Romans 8, 13, we we read this. Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, which means Daddy, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs with God, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, by the Spirit, you can actually put to death the things of the the flesh, the deeds of the body. See, before we know Jesus, we are those wild people. Right? We're the feral, uh, deranged, unchained, whatever you think about, whatever the worst depiction of humanity it is that you have, that's who we are in our flesh. But in the midst of that mess, God intervened, sending Jesus to us. On the cross, he gave up his spirit for us so that we can have his spirit inside of us. And the spirit of Jesus is given to everyone who has been adopted into his family. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then you you have his spirit because you are his child. And you are his heir. And every follower of Jesus can live like Jesus. Now you might remember this other classic 90s movie called The Lion King. Has anyone ever seen this one? 
Okay, a, a couple of you. Maybe you guys need to see some movies this weekend. Um, so there, there's this scene where, where Simba, who has run away from home, right, as a cub, because he was tricked into thinking that he had inadvertently killed his dad. And, and really it was his, his evil uncle Scar. And, and, and as he, after a while, he's gone away. And, and, and he happens across this sage, mystical monkey named Rafiki. Okay, and, and Simba has been gone for so long that everybody thinks that he's dead. But really, he's just been kind of slumming it with a, a warthog and a meerkat and eating slugs and bugs and singing and dancing. And it's, it's just like a, it's a very strange part of the movie, actually. You know, he just disappears, and then he comes back for a while. He leaves everybody in this kind of quagmire of, of they're stuck, you know, under the, the, the mean paw of, of his Uncle Scar. But, but he comes back, and, and even though he looks a lot different, Rafiki recognizes him. And he says, I know your father. To which Simba replies, you mean you, you knew my father? And he says, correction, I know your father. And, and, and Simba goes, well, I, I hate to tell you this, but he actually died a few years ago. And Rafiki says, ha, wrong again. And he races off and, and he heads towards a watering hole. And you see this kind of confused Simba who's chasing him. And they, they kind of creep down along to the edge of the water. And as he looks into the water, he sees himself and his reflection for the first time. And what we discover is that he's no longer a cub, right? He's a lion. And he's not just any lion, but he is the spitting image of his father, the king. And then Rafiki does some kind of voodoo magic stuff, and, and all of a sudden the reflection actually turns into Mufasa, who tells his son this. He says, you have forgotten who you are, and therefore have forgotten me. You are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. You are my son. If, you, if you're a follower of Christ today, here's the, the message for you. Remember who you are. You are a son of the king. See, that's Paul's message for the church. Remember who you belong to. Remember that you were not just created to look like the image of your father, but he thought so much of you that he gave his son for you so that you can have his very spirit inside of you. And because of what the son has done for you, you are more than what you've become. See, Jesus said it like this when he prayed to his heavenly father on the night he was arrested. He said, the glory that you have given me, father, I have given to them that they might be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you loved them. See, Jesus says, I in them and you and me, the spirit is within us so that we can be more like him by walking step by step with him. And as, as we walk with him, we're changed. You know, what does it mean to walk? I don't know how many of you like to exercise, but um, if you like to exercise, or even if you don't, you know that walking is not very fast. Now, I've got a neighbor who was uh, last year running marathons, and he ran the Boston Marathon, and now he, he uh, uh, sprained a ligament in his knee, and so I see him out, and he's still going five miles every morning, and so instead of running, he's walking. It takes him like twice as long, like forever. I, I see him out there, I'm like, man, you know, man I, I just can't run right now. But at least I can walk. And I'm not a doctor, it's probably not a good idea to walk when you have a tendonitis. But um, either way, walking isn't fast, but it's slow, it's deliberate, it's progressive. It's a slow and steady transformation. And that's, that's not exactly something that would sell a lot. 
That's not something that we like to market, you know, slow and steady progress. And Eugene Peterson, in his classic book on following Jesus called Along Obedience in the Same Direction, he says it this way. He says, we assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Right? But just like your garden, Christian growth can be long and slow and difficult to observe. See, life with Jesus is this journey of becoming more like him every day as we walk step by step with him in his spirit. That fruit doesn't appear overnight, but it does come over time as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we remember who we are. As that old song says, when we turn our eyes to Jesus, when we remember who we are and whose we are, then the things of earth, they actually grow strangely dim. That's what it means to have crucified the flesh and its desires. They're starved by a lack of attention when our affection turns to Jesus. Uh, Thomas Kramer called this the expulsive power of a new affection. See, and, and we can't even love Jesus on our own like this, but he has to be the one who empowers us to do it. And finally, we remember the words of Jesus on the cross. You know, his words on the cross, thank God, were not earned this. But he didn't pull us close and stare us in the eyes and, and demand that we live every day with an unbearable guilt that we could never repay him for what he's done. Instead, what does he say on the cross? He cries out for mercy to his father on behalf of those who've abandoned him and rejected him and put him there. And he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then he declared to the world, it is finished, which means that my sacrifice is complete and perfect and you can't add anything to this. So I love what King Solomon, who's the the author of Ecclesiastes, says in in chapter 3, and we read this this week in the central office if you're following us. He says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into men's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so the people fear before him. See, through the terror of the cross, God has made everything beautiful. At the, at the cross, he placed eternity into our hearts. At the cross, we find perfect joy and the power to deny our own selfish and sinful desires in order to pursue something and someone greater. See, God's, nift, God's gift to us is not that we would cut ourselves off from the world, but that we would become more like him. And as we do, we become free to enjoy his creation all the while knowing that this world is not our final destination. See, the cross endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it because God is the one who has done it. Why not you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a gift we have in Jesus. Lord, as, as we think upon his sacrifice for us, God, we know we can't earn that. There's no way that we deserve it. And yet you don't call us to live in guilt and you don't try to shame us into acting in a way that we should act. But Lord, this grace is a free gift. You've actually invited us to join you in your work through the power of the Spirit inside of us. Lord, so that our life can have purpose and meaning. 
that, that we can know what it's like to really and truly live when we come alive in the spirit of Jesus. Lord, we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and enter us. Lord, that you would be at work inside of us, that we could say, it's not me, but it's Christ Jesus and his spirit working inside of me. Lord, that you would help us to see those things that, that we give too much attention. Lord, that you would help us to focus and fix our eyes on Jesus, to remember what he's done and remember who we are. We pray this in his name. Amen.